0: We're back in this bitch, another podcast in short order. Look at that, less than a week, like I said from the last time. On this episode, I'm looking forward to doing the exact very thing that I talked about in the last episode, but I'm going to flip it up a little bit because I actually do have a little bit of the low-riding pata physics to share with you as well. What are the low-riding pata physics that I'm going to be talking about with you all for today? Coronavirus, boy. And the natural law theory, son. I had my ethics class last night, and we had just the most absolutely amazing discussion that really, really, really applied the philosophy in the natu- of the natural law theory, I should say, in great, um, perhaps even at moments, uncomfortable detail. And I'm looking forward to sharing that on this podcast as the best that I can recall it, as well as some other thoughts about one particular article that I read that i believe is perfectly suited for what it is that you know we're all currently experiencing globally man this quote-unquote pandemic that we're experiencing seems to got a lot of people up in their fear response systems right now so it's just an interesting time and i think it's the perfect time to talk about not just you know this particular article but also a little bit of natural law influence theory so before i continue with that a quick shout out to all the people that have been following along with the podcast and following along on social media if you have yet to do so, and you're hearing this podcast for the first time, what's up? It's your boy, Ice Nice. I encourage you to give me a follow on social media, preferably Instagram, OG underscore Ice Nice 13. Um, you can also find me somewhere along the lines of that name on Facebook and Twitter. I reactivated my Twitter recently. Um, hopefully, I'll try to get back on that as much as possible, but for sure, for sure, you can find your boy talking all the sad boy, atheist, Nawa, fucking philo- philo- uh, hood philosophy shit on there, right? So, yeah, without further ado, let's just get straight to the point of today's podcast, man. The coronavirus, boy. I mean, there's so much going on in regards to this particular subject. It's really a hard place to even know where to begin, not because of, you know, lack of information, but because of an overabundance thereof. There's, um, you know, me specifically, I have been trying to rein myself in from the quote unquote conspiratorial lens and. Um, But, you know, by default, that's kind of where my mind immediately leads to as given uh, as the discussion on the Prison Planet podcast has already alluded to. Um, But now at this point in time especially following yesterday's uh, lecture in class, not because, well, for, yeah, obviously, it's not that it changed my mind per se, it's just it just, it, it made me aware of the importance of having to play both sides of the fence, which is what I did in class. I'd always do that in my class. I'll argue, for instance, in favor of nihilism, but I'll also argue against nihilism, despite the fact that I really don't believe in either one of them, right? So thus far, I have been focusing quite a bit on the conspiratorial bent of the coronavirus, but it's also important to focus on the uh, scientific bent, Right. As much as I want to say that this is a manufactured disease and perhaps even a weapon—a fucking, you know—a a, a chemical weapon that has been utilized by the Chinese, you know, government in order to try to disrupt global markets and affect citizens around the world—that's the conspirator, the conspiratorial side de- talking. As much as I want to say that it's just another excuse for the government to strip away liberties and, you know. Uh, keep people under a control system. That's also the quote unquote conspiratorial side talking, which I'm not saying either one of them are wrong. I'm just saying that it's also important to take into account the scientific aspect of it and that is that it's just you know, for one let, let's talk about the the shutting down of you know so, uh, sports, celebrity and uh, other kinds of events. Uh, part of me feels as though it's just this is, uh, you know, the conspiratorial part talking, but it feels as though it's just uh, beginning processes and getting people accustomed to living in a world where we're basically on fucking lockdown by the government. Right. Uh you for those of you who are really deep into the conspiracy world, you would you'll know that, I, that, that the idea stems from FEMA camps, the fear of FEMA camps. Like, why is the government creating all these FEMA camps at different places around the world? What are their purposes for? Right. And, you know, me personally, I feel as though it's a sort of predictive programming. When you start getting people afraid to go out to sporting events, where you start getting people afraid to, you know, leave their house. When you start getting people afraid to be around mass, you know, g- mass groups of people, and that the fear can only be quelled by the aid of the government coming along and saying we're here to protect you. You know, typical paternalism type bullshit. So my initial reaction to that is obviously like, man, fuck that. They're just programming us in such a way to make us complacent and comfortable with such a future in the future. Uh, you know, should it ever come to pass. However. From a scientific perspective, the quarantines are easily explainable. And it is because, you know, that's how you keep the pandemics from spreading. That, you know, if you ask an epidemiolo- epidemiologist, that's exactly what they're gonna say. Why hasn't the contagion spread as quickly or as far as, it, you know, in, in certain parts of the world as in others? Because those parts responded after following the Wuhan outbreak and they've had the ability to lock down. And because of that lockdown, they've quelled any potential spread of the virus that could have potentially led to disastrous results. Right. So I guess for the sake of fairness, that is the little bit of other side of the argument that I will give to it. However, again, my intention as a philosopher is never to examine it from a scientific perspective. I'm not qualified to do so. I'm not a scientist, so I really can't say. At best, all I'm doing is simply regurgitating to you information that I read from a bunch of fucking scientists, a bunch of smart people, you know, that have who are studying the matter. Now, obviously, I read them with a critical lens, and I'm kind of skeptical of a lot of it, not the science per se, but where is it coming from? Who's delivering it? What is the intention of this? Is it to spread fear? Is it to pacify fear? Like, what that's typical philosophy shit, though. You know what I'm saying? Um, where it does relate to the field of philosophy, however, though, is the ramifications of an actual pandemic occurring in anywhere in the world, but especially here where we live. For those of us who are listening to in the United States of America, for me personally, here in El Paso, Texas, what makes El Paso, Texas so special? is simply that we're located... The, there's a giant fucking army base located in our city. I've talked about it before, Fort Bliss. And there's another one just right up the road. It's number one and two, the one right up the road. Um, What is it? Holloman, I want to say. And then here, Fort Bliss, number two. One and two, largest military installations of the United States government in the world. And because of that, we get people from all over the fucking world, man. We get soldiers that constantly are deployed all over the world. A lot of them living in Europe, where a large part of this coronavirus has, in fact, already spread motherfucking Italy on lockdown completely because of it. You know what I'm saying? So um, not to say that there are soldiers here in El Paso who are already afflicted with it, let alone regular citizens. But the possibility that it could occur in this city is not entirely out of the question. Um, I know one person in particular said, I don't think a lot of people from El Paso would tra- tra- travel to China to which the simple response is they don't fucking have to travel to China, man. The China it's already fucking, they, they, they weren't able to properly quarantine it within the city or within the state rather itself, the country, God damn. And because of that, this shit is everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, it, it, it and the way that it spreads is just airborne disease. So it's not like you need to be in an intimate setting where the, where, where, where the contagion is, the virus is in order to be afflicted. So it's very possible that it could come here to El Paso. And because of that, that's where our lecture for yesterday, my ethics class began. Straight up question. And it's the question that I I had two classes yesterday. One of them was my high school class in the morning. And when I asked them, who's afraid of the coronavirus? I on God, yo, on God, the first response that came out of one of their mouths was, if I die, I die. Typical fucking centennial at this point, because my high school students are centennials. Yeah, they're like 16, 17, 18 years old, right? So they were born in the 2000s but um typical response that we've come to expect from a depressed realist uh perspective of those living in the modern world you know what i'm saying it's still funny nonetheless um Another one also said something along the lines of, well, you know, predeterminism. If I don't have free will, then there's really nothing I can do about it because if I'm destined to get the coronavirus, then I'm destined to get the coronavirus. To which I, you know, my little philosophy professor Hart was just very thrilled with that because it's like, you do listen. You are paying attention, right? But they're absolutely right. If you are destined to get the coronavirus and, you know, we don't have free will, guess what, boy? That ass is going fucking, it's going to happen one way or another, no matter what you do. You know what I'm saying? Um, but, uh, what, the one that I'm speaking specifically was my non highs I don't have any high school students in this one particular class. And as a matter of fact, what makes that class even more special is I have three, three army veterans who have seen combat. So I have three combat veterans in that course, right? And it made for a very, very, very interesting discussion. Um, initially, initially, and I should qualify further by saying I didn't intend, I didn't intend to go in there to be some fucking... Fear porn peddler. That's never my intention. Okay, as I was explaining to the students, though, and it's one of the one of the critiques that some of the students uh, had because I asked them, "Who's afraid of the coronavirus?" and surprisingly, not a lot raised their hand. Uh, it was only a select handful. I believe like six students that did raise their hand to admit that, "Yeah, I'm afraid of the coronavirus." The rest of them weren't necessarily shook, which I think is a great thing. And I made it a point to clarify to them that the point of this particular lecture is, well, it's twofold. The first of which being to properly introduce the natural law theory, and the second of which being just to analyze the coronavirus or any potential pandemic from a logical, critical, philosophical perspective. Like, Let's just fucking draw it out to its ultimate conclusion and see exactly what is at stake, what exactly people are so worried about, and so on. And it was from there where, well, initially, you know, I w- w- my biggest concern, okay. I, and I told him straight out, like I, I try to be as 100 with my students as possible. So I will ob- always, always, always divorce the philosophy professor from the personal person. So I'll tell because you know they're always asking questions like, well, what do you believe? What do you believe? I'm trying to see if I have the book here. Give me one second. Always with these motherfucking books, right? Oh, here it is. It's over here on this side. Um so yeah as so always with these motherfucking books but I just feel as though it helps blend credence epistemic credence if you will to the arguments that I'm trying to make here and it's this book right here by bell hooks teaching to transgress I know I've mentioned it before but it bears repeating yet again and this is just another this is like one of the the, the staples in critical pedagogy And one of the ideas that is introduced in critical pedagogy, and especially in this book, Teaching to Transgress, is the importance of professors, teachers in general, being fucking real with their students. Because how can you expect your students to be real with you if you, as a professor or a teacher, don't have the courtesy to extend the same fucking favor to them, right? So I will always tell my students, and this is how our lecture started forthright, I will always give them what I personally, as as an individual being, completely removed from the philosophy professor, believe. But then I'll give them the philosophy professor uh, answer, right? And I'll always qualify it by telling them, like, Yo, generally I don't like to tell you what I believe because I don't want to bias your opinion in any ways. I understand and I recognize full well, for instance, the privileged role that I have as a professor and how some might see it as a as an authoritative position uh, in terms of what to believe and what not to believe, at least. And that because of that, you know, it could potentially sway their own personal opinions. Which I remind them that's not the intention of why I'm sharing this with you. But I did start off my particular lecture by telling them one of two things, the first of which being the predictive programming. Like, yo, that's critical theory 101, bro. This idea that these things are being introduced to us long in advance in order to prepare us for these future events that occur so that when they do occur, the emotional brunt will have already been bared, if you will. The cognitive dissonance will have already been properly dealt with. Uh, In this particular case, I gave them the example of Space Jam. For those of you who are hip on the um, conspiracy threads on the gram right now. Perhaps you've seen the one floating around of the movie Space Jam where the NBA season gets canceled and you know it's all getting quarantined. The NBA players are being checked for viruses and all that. Well, they're being checked for as to why they're losing their abilities, you know what I'm saying? And they cancel the NBA season out of abundance of security for their players and whatnot, you know what I'm saying? And when I brought this up to my students, they were like, oh shit, like I remember that movie from when I was a kid, to which I was trying to explain to them, like, yeah, that's that's how predictive programming works. It implants these ideas inside your head and it makes you ask questions like, damn, imagine if that really happened. Could that possibly be the case? What would I do if I was in that scenario? Right. So you've already dealt with all of the emotional baggage associated with a movie like that. Or the other example that I gave was The Matrix, because that one's a lot more visceral, a lot more powerful. Okay, And it definitely elicits a stronger emotional response so that in turn, it's, it's natural that it's going to have more of, a, of an impact on you. So then I tell my students, like, imagine all those emotions that you experienced when you first watched the movie and now that they've already been instilled in you, now that you've already become familiar with them, when it actually does occur, the predictive programming does in fact manifest itself. It's kind of like, oh, well, I've seen this movie before. You know what I'm saying? And that's where my initial concern was with my students. But then, I mean, with with this whole coronavirus outbreak, and that's what I explained to my students, I should say. But then I took it a step further and I said, but real shit, real shit, my concerns, they're not even, I don't even need to qualify them by saying it's from the critical theoretical field of philosophy. I don't even need to qualify them further by saying that they might be conspiratorial because it's just a simple analysis of human nature. And that's where shit starts to get real fucking dark, bro. Um... I told one of my students who he seemed to have a real problem with even wanting to discuss this, which you know I, I, I found to be quite odd. But I explained to him like, yo, when we're in philosophy in general, we're concerned with the nature of human beings. And the nature of human beings is never relegated to just the good that we perceive in human beings. It's also fucking bad because in fact, it's mostly the bad that has led us to this fucking modernized world that we're living in. It wasn't because people got along and saying kumbayas that I'm sitting here fucking being able to lecture you or rather give this podcast via you know, technological form. The fucking world was built on people fighting tooth and claw, right? Uh, tooth and fang, if you will. Or what is it? Uh, whatever the fucking saying is. Blood, blood of tooth and claw or some shit like that. Um. Anyways, the point is that it was built on violence. It was built on fucking exploitation. It was built on fucked up. Human behavior, the most fundamental of human behaviors that stem from the most fundamental of human desires, namely that of survival. Okay. Especially when it comes to an ethics course, because actually, just the week before that, in that ethics class, we had been discussing the morality and religion and how God isn't, you know, isn't incapable of being the moral authority, if you will, because doing so would undermine God's ultimate authority. So what that leaves us with then is the realization that either ethics comes from us, to us rather, to, of, from one of two places. It is either given to us via the natural world, like all the other natural laws, hence the natural law theory. And I told him straight up, you're not going to fucking like that. You're not going to want that. Nobody realistically, aside from my like really hardcore dude bros, like the natural law theory why because it basically states that whatever is moral is that which is found in nature and you know you can find all kinds of things that you and i may perhaps find immoral such as rape torture murder that occur in the natural world all the fucking time and if we're you know abide by the natural law theory well then realistically there's no reason why we can't justify uh such actions in the human world by simply appealing to our natural inclinations you know what i'm saying So that's obviously for people like myself and many other philosophers, obviously, most likely probably you as well listening to this. That's just not a fucking option. We don't, I don't, I don't want to live in that kind of world, right? And the dark part is you start to realize you head down to the fucking the the Costco's or the Walmarts and you start to see all the empty shelves and you start thinking to yourself, oh shit, I may very well already be living in that world. The resources may have already been, you know taken by the people who have the the, the greatest means, of the, the fittest means of survival in the capitalist society like the world, one we're living in, that implies money. The ones that have the money to be able to go off and spend fucking hundreds of dollars of extra income just to prepare for a potential fucking uh, seizing of normal human or, or normal American rather operations. You know what I'm saying? Fucking people in the hood, bro, we're not afforded that luxury, man. We're struggling, many of us, just to get by. You know what I'm saying? And you start to realize real quick then that fitness, in the most you know Darwinian sense of the term, it really does extend to the human world, but no longer in terms of you know fang tooth and fang, but now in terms of other resources like financial wealth. You know what I'm saying? So uh, circling back then to this natural law theory, many of us were initially reticent in the philosophical world to assert that as our dominant norm which only leaves us with one other option. And well, I guess it leaves us with two other options. The first option is that morality simply doesn't exist, that it's all just, it's morally bankrupt. It's just another one of the many institutions that have been devised to uh, you know, uh, control our behavior, if you will. And the second being is that it comes from human beings, that we created it, right? Now, the, uh, the, this is going to lead us inevitably to the social contract theory, which I'll definitely talk about at some other time, but before I got there, and this is what I was trying to tell to my students, because we didn't inevitably get there, uh, or at least we started to scratch the surface onto the social contract theory yesterday. But in order to create the social contract theory, you first got to examine the people who are creating the social contract theory. And that is, of course, people, everyday people like you and I. Now, at this point in the class, I had already introduced them to them, this to them before. It's an idea that often gets uh, misattributed to Hannah Arendt. She's a very famous philosopher. She's the one that named it, but she's outright stated that that was not her iteration, which is fine because I don't need her iteration. It's my iteration, okay? But I still use her name, it's referred to as the banality of evil. And essentially what the banality of evil is, is the great argument that demonstrates just how boring and average and everyday evil truly is. It's going to also further go on to tell us that we personally, uh, we lack the ability Uh, You know, evil is so boring in every day that we lack the ability to actually properly spot evil when it does, in fact, occur. So much so that we've been staring at it fucking into the mirror for as long as we've been conscious, as long as you've had the ability. I put a dot here because there's that famous psychology experiment where they put a dot on little kid's head and they ask them, they have no sense of self. So the ones that have yet to develop a sense of self, they'll go and try to scratch the dot off the, they put them in front of a mirror and they'll go to try to scratch the dot off their head in the mirror because they don't recognize that the person in the mirror is themselves. You know what I'm saying? You and I, hopefully at this point, we had the sense of self. So we see a dot on our fucking forehead. We're going to go and try to scratch it off of our own proper forehead. You know what I'm saying? So from the moment that you gain that sense of self, that identity of self, and you realize that the dot is, in fact, on your forehead, from that moment is the moment that you could have very well been cognizant of the fact that you're fucking evil, bro. I'm fucking evil. Everybody that's walking this planet, at the very least, at the very least, is capable of evil. You know what I'm saying? We have this misguided belief, for instance, that you and I would never be able to... uh, uh, act in such a way that is normally attributed to evil actions such as in a rapacious murderous torturous way you know what i'm saying we have to think to ourselves that people like adolf hitler and uh, joseph stalin and fucking hernan cortez that they're fucking special in the sense that they were just born sociopaths and psychopaths that were able to commit such actions that enabled that you know that led to great uh, suffering and genocide and whatnot you know what i'm saying which I'm sure is true. I'm sure if we had the ability to analyze the brains of those individuals, much like we do today in 2020, we would undoubtedly find that they possess many characteristics that are not, you know, of sociopaths, of psychopaths, you know what I'm saying? But what's more fucking real is that you're absolutely going to find in every single last one of them, characteristics that are inherent in every single human being. And these are the characteristics that we have to fucking examine when we're creating a natural law, when we're creating a moral code, essentially, right? You got to understand the essence of the people who are creating the moral code in order to properly account for these shortcomings when it comes time for the moral code. And what are some of the fucking things that we take into account for? The fact that everyday people like you and I either complicitly or implicitly rather or explicitly are constantly contributing to this giant matrix of pain and suffering that exists all around the world. Just by virtue of owning a cell phone, for instance, we are immediately beholden to all the childhood slavery that's occurring in the Congo uh, and soon to be in Mexico as they're mining all the conflict minerals to you know piece together the iPhones in the first place. Just by owning these iPhones and computers and smart cars, we' are beholden to the, sl- the the slavery conditions that people find themselves in the factory in the sweatshops, rather in China who are piecing them together, right? Working insane amount of hours throughout the day for a low amount of pain with very little protection in form of labor policies. You know what I'm saying? And that's all because people like you and I don't want to fucking spend another extra thousand, two thousand dollars for an iPhone when we could spend a fraction of that cost operating it in the, uh, or rather, if it continues to operate in the current way that it is now, namely in the form of sweatshops and child labor. You know what I'm saying? It's one of the great parts from that Ricky Gervais uh, Academy Award speech, where he fucking outed Tim Cook from Apple, who was there. And he said, oh, yeah, how great to have a show on fucking uh, Apple about whatever the fuck his show's about. You know what I'm saying? Meanwhile, the entire time, you're fucking contributing to the suffering of millions of people around the world through your your, your, your your sweatshops, essentially, right? So in that respect, yeah, that's how you and I are evil because, you know, obviously, it's a supply and demand system and fucking capitalism. So ideally speaking, in the most ideal sense, those children wouldn't be being held at gunpoint in the Congo. Those people wouldn't be forced to work in sweatshops in China if, you know, you and I just simply didn't buy the iPhone. But, you know, me personally, I like my iPhone. Me personally, I like to be able to give you my fucking podcast and I also like my money and I don't like to want to have to spend it extra amount on shit that, you know, I could buy for a fraction of the cost. So it puts me specifically, obviously, especially in a very awkward position because I'm more than well aware of it. I'm more well aware of the information. I'm more well aware of the fucking ramifications and I still choose to engage in it nonetheless, right? The out that I give my students is at least y'all are barely learning of this because many of them don't know where the fuck the, the conflict minerals, they don't know what they are. They don't know what the sweatshops in China are about. They don't know any of that shit. So I'm barely introducing it to them. You know what I'm saying? Me, on the other hand, this is my fucking fifth year already teaching the same shit. And it's like, yo, at what point are you going to just accept the fact that low key, bro, you, ice nice, you're just the evil motherfucker that you like to conveniently turn your head when things are inconvenient for you to, you know, when they're inconvenient for you, just at that, you know what I'm saying? So with that initial understanding of the potential of evil that exists with all of us, this is how we circle back to the coronavirus. I just asked my students straight up, yo, like, before we get into the actual coronavirus, just imagine, just, just quick thought experiment. You don't even have to imagine because we've all seen the videos of Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. They moved this to the day after Thanksgiving, man. They didn't even wait anymore, right? It was like, let's get this shit over with as soon as possible. Now, obviously, the reason that I mentioned the Black Friday example is because every single last one of us has seen the videos of people at Black Friday literally fighting fucking tooth and fang. Why do I keep saying tooth and fang? I'm sorry, right? Tooth and or whatever, claw, fang and claw, okay? I should really look it up, but I'm not going to. You know what I'm trying to say, okay? Goddamn, come me some slack, boy and gal, whoever, if John to be gender exclusive here. (laughs) Um, But the reason why I bring up the Black Friday again is because obviously you and I, we've all seen the videos of people fucking throwing hands at Walmart for a fucking discounted television, discounted allegedly television. You know what I'm saying? And every single time this happens, a meme, a counter meme, the antithesis to it emerges and it states, yo, if this is what they'll do for a fucking discounted television, what the fuck are they going to do when the lights go out? What are they, you and I, going to do when the water runs out? What are we going to do when the food supplies run low? You know what I'm saying? Because every single person in this class, me included, likes to imagine ourselves as never being able to commit atrocious, immoral actions. But that's only because every single person in this class, myself included, is living in a world, I'm putting myself in the frame of last night's lecture discussion, um, we've inherited a world that's already been ready made not many of us here i have a few you know older uh uh students very non traditional in that sense the community college at- atmosphere right so from what i know However, most of the students in my philosophy class, we inherited this world, myself included. We didn't lay the foundation for it. We didn't, you know, we didn't fight any of the major wars uh, with the exception of those three students that I mentioned had combat experience that are currently fighting now necessary to have the luxuries and amenities that we do in this first world country. So we're kind of just take it for granted. So we've never been put in a position then in turn where we would have to find out whether or not we are capable of such actions. It's at this point in my lecture, if I recall correctly, that one of my students even said like, yeah, man, one of the craziest parts for me was when I realized how easy it was to shoot at another person that was coming at me with a gun. That's a very powerful thing to fucking say to somebody, man. You know what I'm saying? Because that person is essentially stating this entire life, even though they had been trained to be combat veterans, they never really understood what it meant to be a combat service member until they were put in that position. And when they were, they were taken aback by how easy it was to fucking pull the trigger. You know what I'm saying? And that's for something like as ambiguous as national security. That's something as ambiguous as the United States military telling you this is your job and this is what you do. Now, I say ambiguous because it's the contrast to when shit really starts to get real. Shit really starts to get real when, I mean, I went to Walmart yesterday and today. I'm not going to front. And yesterday, there was lots of water. Today, there was no water at all whatsoever. And I was kind of taken aback. I'm not trying to fall into... Again, I'm not trying to peddle a fear here, but it did kind of take me aback like, oh shit, like motherfuckers are getting serious about this kind of shit. You know what I'm saying? So um, since I've never really been put in that position, furthermore, obviously, it stands to reason that I've never been put in a position where my loved one's livelihoods is going to depend on the ability to secure resources that are no longer... Readily available. As I said before, we live in a world that is ready made. I've never had to worry about collecting water. I've never had to worry about getting food. And if something were to occur, someone got sick. I never had to worry about health care or medical care. All of that has properly been taken care of by the infrastructure of this country that we're living in. And if that infrastructure gets threatened by something like the fucking pandemic that is currently being, you know, ravaging the world. What are people like you and I going to do? The ones that lack the survival skills necessary to be able to properly collect water, to be able to properly cultivate food, to be able to properly care for ourselves in the absence of any medical care. And that's when shit really starts to get fucking real. You know what I'm saying? Um, I gave to my students the example of The Walking Dead, man. Yo, I stopped watching The Walking Dead after they played my, my after they played my boy Glenn like that. You know what I'm saying? But from the little bit that I did see, the first six or so seasons that I did see, it was never about the zombies. That show was never about the zombies. That show was only, always, ever about human nature, how humans react and respond in an apocalyptic society, and it doesn't end well. And historically speaking, there's credence to justify this. You know what I'm saying? so going back to the idea of a person of, of my student a combat veteran who felt no remorse at all whatsoever or no qualms uh, firing at another person who you know was attempting to fire on him the idea is simple at one point or another i mean and this is where the article that i read earlier is going to or, or that i'm going to be discussing later is going to come into play now but at some point or another we have to at least entertain the thought that we might very well live through such a scenario, not maybe through the combat scenario that's very relegated, or at least through the military, but in a scenario, for instance, where a loved one of yours is in dire need of food, where a loved one of yours is in dire need of water or of medicine, and you just don't have it. So you're put now in this really fucking uncomfortable position. You're put now in this really ambiguous moral position. Where you have to fucking decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here and allow my loved one, my child, my wife, my husband, my whatever, your grandparents to fucking suffer from starvation and from, you know, dehydration, from lack of medical access? Or am I going to go out and fucking secure those resources one way, shape, or form or another? And that's when things really start to get dark. That's when you really start to realize what it means when people say, if this is what they'll do for a fucking discounted television, what are they going to do when the lights go out? You know what I'm saying? What are they going to do When the fucking food supplies run out, what are they going to do when the water supplies run out, when the medical supplies run out, when it's their fucking child at stake here and it's a matter of them either taking your life to ensure the life of their child or you taking someone else's life to ensure the life of your own life or your own family, et cetera, and so on and so forth. We like to imagine that these things are not possible because we live in the 20th century or 21st century, rather. And we've had things so good, but I mean, this, this is the history of humanity. This is the history of how we got here in the first place. And to assume that it would never occur again, just because we're living in a time when we could send dick pics across the world through our fucking cell phones. That is irrational. You know what I'm saying? So from there, uh, it was around this point in the particular in the lecture that we were discussing that people started to pay more, a little bit more attention to the, the and it's not just because by chance, right? I, I I made it the point in order to do so, but already students had already, their mind had already started wandering that way. And that is the way of the natural law theory and the way the natural law theory particularly reinserted itself in this particular instance is the realization that, okay, if it's just a matter of survival and everybody's going to be out for their own self-interest, who's that going to leave out? Who's going to be left out? to which the answer is simple. It's actually pretty funny because the way that it reemerges itself through my students is by way of two people who were discussing it. I kind of just caught them off the side. I was like, what are y'all talking about? And they said, oh, it's because before class started, we were talking about population control, (laughs) right? And they were like, well, and I told them, well, why didn't you mention it? And they said, because I don't want to introduce that. We didn't want to introduce conspiracy theories. And I said, okay, Understandable, I, I ask all the time. Like, don't like, let's not let's not focus on the conspiratorial aspect of it. Let's focus on it from a critical perspective, including your idea of population control. Now, I'm not going to be irresponsible enough to suggest that the coronavirus is a form of population control, but I'm certainly not going to be naive enough to dismiss the fact that it's clearly affecting certain populations more than it's affecting others. In this particular instance with the coronavirus, it's affecting senior citizens and people with compromised immune systems the most. Now, if you want to get real deep into it and you ask the conspiracy heads, they're going to tell you like, yeah, this is undoubtedly a form of population control. And it's not like it's ever, they don't ever do it in one fell swoop. That would be too dramatic. So instead, what they do is they introduce these, they, it's like they fucking, uh, they, they stagger them in order to not... For the impact of loss of, uh, of of lives, in order to not be so dramatically felt. Um, and in this particular case, there, the argument is, well, there's two arguments. The first is that it was introduced. well, wow, there's so many arguments. Let me just get through them really quickly just so I can get them off my head. Uh, first is that it was a, 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 a bioweapon that escaped. Then it was a bioweapon that was intentionally released by the Chinese in order to disrupt the global markets. And then it's a further. it was further uh, said that it was done so in order to hurt or help certain political candidates, reelection um, uh, chances, et cetera, and so on and so forth, right? And then there's a deep, 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 deep conspiracy from the population control that states, yeah, it's just intended to help ease the current burden on fucking social security that we're facing as a country, right? So that's like, that's really deep conspiracy shit right there, though. You know what I'm saying? But again, if we look at the people who are being on, uh, affected by the coronavirus the most, We don't need to be conspiratorial about it. Like The the fucking proof is in the pudding. Children under the age of 10 don't seem to be too affected by it. And relatively young, healthy adults up to the age of 50, they seem to have a very good chance of surviving it. But once you start getting into the elderly years, shit starts to get really fucking squirrely. You know what I'm saying? And in order to remove it from the natural law, or rather from the conspiracy theory, I just brought it back to the natural law theory. And I said, okay, straight up. Let's imagine that this is not even a pandemic that we're facing, but it is just a world in where it's a fucking case of all for all, everyone for themselves, okay? Where the fittest people survive. And I just simply ask them to imagine, who do you think is going to be the first fucking people who are affected by it? There was three waves that I gave them. There's three waves. And the first wave of people is obviously, obviously always going to be the elderly. Why the elderly? Because they can't fucking fend for themselves as well as physically, uh, as their, as as a younger individual can, you know what I'm saying? Their immune systems are more compromised. their Their bodies, they don't they're 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 more frail. They're more fragile. They're people in general. They just need to be taken care of. You know what I'm saying? This is why we have such things, social safety nets like Social Security and Medicare for the elderly, because without them, we're basically giving them a fucking death sentence the moment they can no longer work to provide for themselves. You know what I'm saying? So, of course, the elderly are the most fucking vulnerable. And if you put them in a position, like as the natural law theory dictates, where they have to fucking be able to defend for themselves, how are they going to possibly roll up in a Black Friday type event where people are fighting fucking fisticuffs for fucking water and win? It's not possible. They're going to get trampled. But they're going to be the first ones down. You know what I'm saying? And if we collectively, as a society, aren't there as their social safety net, they're fucking, that's it. They're done for. You know what I'm saying? the second wave of the people that are going to be most affected by this and this is you know going back to the coronavirus obviously is the fucking sick the people with compromised immune systems why? Because you know they're already at a disadvantage in having to deal with one particular virus, or maybe with one particular illness, disease, or perhaps just you know the the compromised immune system that comes with elderly age. And now they're going to have to be able to fucking combat another potential one that is even more detrimental in the sense that we have no potential means of dealing with it yet. You know what I'm saying? No vaccines and the like. Um, furthermore, furthermore. You have the ones who are already in the hospital. And this is where shit, this is where we started getting back into The Walking Dead from the very first episode of The Walking Dead. So I'm not spoiling shit, don't worry. But, you know, the dude, Frank Grimes, Rick Grimes, rather. Frank Grimes is from Grimy from The Simpsons, right? No, Rick Grimes. Is that even his name? I don't give a fuck what his name is. Whatever the dude was, fucking the one that would hold a gun, all weird and shit from The Walking Dead, right? He finds himself in the hospital and the zombie apocalypse is already outbroken. And basically, had he not awoken from that brief coma that he entered into, he'd have fucking died. Why? Because there was no longer a hospital staff to care for him. The hospital self, uh, the the hospital self staff themselves had already been afflicted by the virus, the, the zombie outbreak. So there was no way that they were going to fucking attend to him. You know what I'm saying? He would have literally just died there in that hospital bed from lack of care, lack of access, lack of medical care, lack of food, water, shelter, etc. You know what I'm saying? Um. Furthermore, let's assume that even even if the zombie outbreak doesn't realistically happen in the real world, okay, and that doctors and nurses here in America are still able to tend to the hospitals, they're already filled with people. That's one of the crazy things that I talk to my students about all the time. It's one of the little fuck-fuck thought experiments that I like to mess with them with. Just to get their minds thinking. And the thought experiment is as follows I always, always have a litany of nursing majors in my class, which is great. Like, yeah, fucking do it, do it up, dog. Be a nursing major, 25 bucks an hour, starting pay, capitalism. You know, you got to secure those means to survive one way or another. Shit, do your thing, dog. However, I always follow that statement up with the following But why are there so many nursing jobs available in El Paso? It's a very important question we got to ask ourselves. Like, it's great that there's so many jobs for you. But why are there so many nursing jobs available in El Paso? It's an old philosophy question, and the answer is simple, because there's a shitload of sick people in El Paso. It's that fucking simple, right? Um, if there weren't so many sick people in El Paso, there wouldn't be such a need for you know so many nurses, so many healthcare providers in this city. There's a lot of people, period. There's about a million people in this city and the surrounding area, Okay. But a lot of them are also sick. And it, you know when you follow the philosophy, rather right, like than more the, the ancient Greek philosophy, but other people as well, they're sick because poor diet, house style, lifestyle changes and all that, or life, lifestyle choices and all that kind of shit. You know what I'm saying? But either way, it, it is what it is. So you already have these hospitals that already have people that need to be cared for. And if now suddenly these hospitals get overrun with even more people that need to be fucking tested or cured even of this disease, this coronavirus rather, it's gonna put an added pressure on the hospitals in general in order to be able to properly meet the needs of every single patient in that hospital. And you know, from what I've been reading, from what I've been seeing, from like the CDC and all that kind of shit, where it doesn't seem like we're really prepared for that, right? Um, in fact, just now before I started this podcast, it was one of the things because Trump just declared a national state of emergency, and one of the things that he was crit- uh, accused of was how improperly his staff has handled the outbreak for this very reason. Just the hospitals in general haven't been prepared to test people, haven't been prepared to cure people, treat people, whatever the case might be. And because of that is only uh, 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 quickly expediting the process, the spreading process of the virus. You know what I'm saying? So going back to this natural law theory, we find ourselves in a situation where the people who are already in the hospital, like, how the fuck, how, how are we going to continue to treat them? Let's say, for instance, if things do get quarantined and the access to the, the, the medicine that they need is cut off, if the access to food that they need is cut off or the access to aid is, that they need is cut off because the doctors themselves get ill. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is all very... It, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be a fear monger right here, but this is just all possible situations that do can and can, in fact, exist unless this is properly treated. And that's the point that I was trying to make to the student who was very upset with this. And it's like, no, nah, man, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm just saying these are some of the many things that we got to think about logically in order to account for the possibility of them occurring. Because if it does occur, then guess what? The fucking death rate of the virus is going to it's going to only steadily increase and in many instances it probably won't even be beca- directly because of the virus it'll be because of our unpreparedness to fucking uh, to tend to the virus you know what i'm saying so from there that was the second wave of people the people who are already sick and the elderly because obviously You know, the people who are already sick, even if they're not in the hospital, they rely on medicines. The elderly, they rely on medicine. You know what I'm saying? And if the medicine routes get disrupted, if the the oil routes get disrupted, all that kind of shit that keeps them from, you know, the medicines from being produced, the medicines from being delivered, like, of course, they're going to fucking suffer, man. And then the third and final wave, the people who are told thus far are not necessarily at risk for the coronavirus. People like myself and the young children. You know what I'm saying? Listen, if shit gets rough, it's going to be people like myself who are up there in fucking Walmart trying to scrounge every fucking last bit of resources that we possibly can. And if things get rough, it's going to be people like myself who are fucking you know faced with the possibility of having to find ourselves in these moral dilemmas of what we're going to do. You know what I'm saying? Uh, at the risk of giving too much information about my own personal life, me personally. I would like to think that I'm not that person that's ever going to hurt, uh, hurt or harm any individual human being. But again, I've never been in a position where I've had to decide. You know what I'm saying? So realistically, it's not. I'm not going to say that it's outside the realm of possibility that I would have to pull up on somebody and say, "Yo, you know, this water here, like I'm gonna need it because I got shit to take care of my own." You know what I'm saying? And the same is true for other people who are going to try to come at me for my resources. This is the state of nature. This is ancient philosophy manifesting itself in its modern time. You know what I'm saying? And uh, actually, uh, at this particular point, I just inserting myself into the part into the discussion, I said, and if I did have to come up into this situation, you best believe that I'm going to do it. And the natural law includes, or it, it, it almost dictates that you do so in a way that's going to ensure your survival. And for us here in Texas, there's no better way to do so then, you know, running up on those Texans who don't feel as though weapons, if you will, guns should be a fundamental right of all American citizens. Like you're basically a walking target at this point, dog. Right. So I'm not saying that I personally, I guess I should retract that. I'm not personally going to do it. You know what I'm saying? But think about it from a logical perspective. People will. And if you're one of those dudes or fucking ladies out there running around with a Beto work for Senate or for president bumper sticker, and there's people out there who are struggling to fucking find water and shelter and safety, you just put a fucking bullseye on your back, bro, because they'll know, hey, this person, they vote for Beto, and Beto wanted to take the guns. And that means they probably don't have guns either. And I know that they probably have water and food and shelter because I saw them posted up on Facebook. So, what's up? Let's get these resources one way or another because I got a daughter to feed at home. I have a son to feed at home. I have an elderly abuelita to feed and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? So, shit starts to get really fucking dark. And that's, you know, that's the first part of how people like you and I would be immediately cast into these moral quandaries with this fucking coronavirus outbreak. The second way, though, and, you know, this is a perhaps more realistic way, is understanding just how deeply this coronavirus is going to disrupt many of our pre established beliefs when it comes to shit like labor politics, bro. Right now, one of the biggest impediments to the fucking, uh, not the biggest impediment, but a big threat, I should say, to the spreading, further spreading of the coronavirus is the lack of fucking basic fundamental protections that working class Americans have. We're gonna have people who may very well be afflicted with the coronavirus who are not going to be able to take days off of work because they don't have paid days off, because they don't have sick leave, because they don't have vacation time, because they need to fucking survive. Their work won't pay them unless they're working. So they're going to be put into a very fucking strange situation where they themselves are going to have to choose between possibly infecting other people by going to work or starving to death because they're not going to get paid. The government's not going to give them fucking food in order for them to stay home and quarantined. You know what I'm saying? And that's raising all sorts of issues when it comes against these labor practices. Like, How the fuck have we allowed ourselves to live into the modern era Without the most basic of fundamental human rights necessary to ensure not only the survival of individual people should they become ill outside of this potential pandemic outbreak, but just especially when it does hit, like goddamn, dude, this this pandemic is really, really, really exposing the weaknesses in our fucking current, you know, labor practices and labor policies that we find ourselves living in. You know what I'm saying? So that's just another way that people like you. And I, the ones I'm assuming listening to this, you know, um, are going to be affected by this fucking virus outbreak. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll have a good chance of surviving it. But that chance of catching it is going to only be furtherly, further exponentially increased because of the fucking society that we're living in. That's going to force us inevitably to come into contact with people who have potentially fallen ill with the coronavirus. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, so far, that's the first half of the lecture that I the podcast. I'm sorry. Right, that I had planned for today. So, if you give me just one quick second. All right. So, that brings us to the second part of the podcast that I wanted to share with you. And, like I said at the beginning, it's going to be a fucking hybrid of the traditional El Grito, where it's me giving you my thoughts, as was the case with the first 48, 45 minutes or so. And the second part being with a, uh, philo- a philosophy article that I read recently that perfectly um, and captures, I guess I should say, captures rather. What my own personal thoughts were regarding not just the coronavirus, but the hu- hu- our our current position in general. Okay, I know I've mentioned it before. Let's see where the book is. Um, right here, if you can see them. Uh, I guess I guess you can't. But they're the philosophy of horror books that I have been reading a while back. Um, and that those books in and of themselves perfectly captured that very sentiment, and it is the realization of the fleeting. Nature of human existence, nothing is permanent dog, including human existence. One way or another, the human project will come to an end unless we find a way, for instance, to escape this planet to a more hospitable planet in the billions of years from now when it's going to take for the sun to explode because inevitably, billions of years are a long time, but it's still time and the time will come when the sun does in fact explode and if that time comes and we have yet to overcome our very base level human fucking animalistic instincts, the kinds of which are on full display right now at fucking all the major grocery stores, for instance, where people can give a fuck less about everyone else uh, dying of dehydration. They're trying to hoard all the water for themselves, right? Um, unless we can overcome those basic human animalistic uh instincts. We're not good fucking we're not gonna find a way out this planet, bro. It's just it's not, it's not gonna happen. And if we continue on that trajectory, well, honestly, we probably won't even have to wait for the fucking sun to explode. We'll probably be gone long before that happens because we'll just succumb to fucking global warming. You know what I'm saying? Um, by the way, one of the, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm correct here in this, in, in, in this, one of the, uh, one of the, one of the reactions, if you will. Of global warming is such these viruses, like the, how the way they spread, the introduction of new viruses that have been hidden, you know, because they've been buried under permafrost for you know millions of years and are suddenly going to reemerge. Like this coronavirus, it's just a potential one of many that's going to be further exacerbated by global warming. And we're doing that, and we know that we're doing it full well. You know what I'm saying? And that we know even further that it poses a direct threat to our existence as human beings. So you know why I mention it is because, well as the name of the article states the name of the article is the end is coming and the, the author of the of the article is a, is, a is, is named agnes callard or agnes callard however you want to pronounce it it's two L so in spanish callard right um but it, yeah essentially it's just her interpretation she doesn't explicitly state the full i'm assuming it's a her by the way right um she doesn't explicitly state it as the philosophy of horror, but it is what it is. That's what it is, right? It's rearing its ugly little head again. And it's what uh, the way she's mentioning it is she's talking about it in terms of this coronavirus, right? But she, again, also herself as the author of the um, philosophy of horror trilogy is concerned with the specter of global warming. It's just been hanging its ugly little head around every single corner. Right, So whether it's this fucking virus that kills us or global warning that kills us, the central point is inevitably the human project will come to an end. In fact, there was this real prominent fucking economist, uh, according to this article, that gave us about 700 years, give or take, at the current trajectory that we're heading. So in 700 years, it may very well be that the last human being walks the fucking planet. Okay? So on top of all of that, we have other mass killers that we need to take into account. And I'm going to say mass killers like Ted Bundy and company fucking Chris Kyle, I'm saying mass killers in the form of things such as suicide, mass killers in the form of things such as heart disease and cancer, the three number one killers of people in America, especially men with suicide. You know what I'm saying? So on top of all the constant attacks that are currently you know, threatening human existence, there's also those just in the United States of America alone. And to further, further, further complicate this, we have this growing fucking tide of Nationalism and ethno nationalism, okay, around the world, and what makes it even more scarier now than it was in the past is that you know technology has made the proliferation of weapons in general, but especially weapons of mass destruction cheaper. It's just easier for these people who want to get a hold of fucking you know weaponry in general, but perhaps even a weapon of mass destruction, it's a lot more easier than it was in the past, and that you know this this shit starts to become really bothersome when you start to think about it, right? And once you place that, this author is going to want to tell us onto the backdrop of the realization that in this first world countries of ours, man, we've basically been living on a backdrop of stagnant economic growth. You know, like people are broke, dog. There's no other way to say it. There's something like 60% of Americans, they can't afford a $500 emergency or more because they're living paycheck to paycheck. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're living in the most advanced supposed world, society in the world, the history has ever known, but motherfuckers are struggling out here, bro. You know, and um, when you mix, it's it basically what it boils down, what it what it all culminates in this perfect cocktail, right? Of dissatisfaction and disillusionment. Um, and you know, again, like I'm not trying to be this fucking fear peddler. I'm not trying to be a fear mongerer. There's plenty of people already out there doing that. I'm not trying to sit here and signal the fucking inevitable end of the world because man, motherfuckers have been proclaiming the end of the world since the biblical days and before. If anything, I would say that we'll be fortunate enough to make it to the fucking end of the world because motherfuckers have been prophesizing it from the end from since the beginning of time. Can you imagine being the generation that's actually fortunate enough to see the fucking end of the human species? That'd be pretty fucking dope. You know what I'm saying? So nah, I'm not trying to be a doomsayer, but I am going to say that the thought of the end of the human species—it's certainly one that we should inevitably inevitably start to entertain, right? And uh, if you ask the author of this article, she's saying that it's already starting to take hold now. I know I've already talked about it before, but I'll just briefly state it quickly just so I can get through a note here. It's the best way to see it is, um, you know, through the sun exploding. That's the most obvious one. Right. But uh, this it's such a foreign and removed idea, possibility that the sun explodes and humans cease to exist because it's such it's just very difficult for us to process that. You know what I mean? It's very difficult for us to process billions of years. So we don't really care about it. But it's when this fucking something very real, like the coronavirus touches down, that these ideas really, really, really make themselves, you know, they really start to take hold within our, within our panic, within our psyche. And they start to cause moments of extreme panic, right? Which, of course, we're seeing right now through things such as the mass buying of products because of the coronavirus. We're seeing again the food supplies running short, the water supplies running short. They're canceling NBA games, bro. That was my i gonna front. That was a point in time in the past when I was a hardcore prepper. And one of the saving graces that I had during that phase, my girlfriend actually is the one that saved me, was uh she just told me straight up, You think they're gonna they're gonna fucking cancel NBA games, NFL games, and risk losing all that money? And I thought to myself, Yeah, you know what, you're right. They're fucking NFL. It was NFL at the time, it was during the winter. Um, they would lose a lot of money if they fucking canceled um, their games. And I don't think that's ever going to happen. So that was kind of, this was in 2012. That was kind of my saving, 2011. That was kind of my saving grace back then. But now, dude, they canceled the motherfucking NBA games, bro. Those shits are, for now, they're suspended. They canceled March Madness. Like, this shit is possible. You know what I'm saying? And it seems like it's all happening so quickly that to try to even argue otherwise would be absurd, you know? so at this point we start to realize that as humans we basically we have one of two options we can either find a way to first fix and then escape this planet you know because of the sun or global warming or Inevitably, we're going to die off because of both, either one of them. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that's our two options at this point. Well, you could throw in the coronavirus at this point as well, or any other future potential pandemic that emerges because of our unwillingness to prepare or unwillingness to properly take into account the possibility of such occurrences happening because they're not, you know, for money, you know, it's not good for the government, for people to not be working or whatever the case might be. Okay. Now. Uh, the art the author of this of this article in particular, she introduces uh, let's see, let's see here. let me find it real quick. She re- introduces what is referred to as the quote unquote infertility scenario. The infertility scenario is a very famous example in in, in philosophy. and it, it it is to help demonstrate the uh, the possibility of humans uh, ceasing to exist. And she personally uses the example of the movie Children of Men, where it's no more human beings are being born, right? And um basically what happens in the movie, Is that prior to that one baby being born, the world is basically a complete shit show. It's devolved into utter fucking chaos. You know what I mean? Uh, It's no one, not only is it a world of utter chaos, but it's a world where people just don't fucking care anymore. They've just given up, right? Militarism, nihilism, fucking genocidal, uh, racist violence, all that kind of stuff. Like it just, it's happening and people just don't give a fuck. Okay. And according to this argument, the reason why is because so much of our actions here in the now, are ultimately devoted to this perceived future in the human where people still exist even if it's not us like obviously we're okay or maybe mostly some of us with the fact that we're going to die but the idea that the human race will continue to exist that is enough this article's gonna, this uh, argument's going to want to tell us to uh, enable us to be able to do and you know engage with actions knowing full well that future human uh uh generations will benefit from it you know what i'm saying And that without the prospect of these future people, the meaning of our lives, this argument is going to, this argument argues, becomes self-interested. We no longer care about the future. We care about ourselves, right? Uh, The meaning of our life now becomes prone to cruelty and entirely indifferent to suffering. In fact, now that I think about this, I'm going to actually title this particular podcast The Plague. And it's going to be in reference to the book by Albert Camus because that's kind of the general gist there. His plague, though, is like absurdism and nihilism, and it's going to affect all people. And rather than confront the plague, people are going to instead fucking engage in ethno nationalism instead, which, yeah, it's kind of what this article is saying now that I think about it, right? Anyways. Um. So yeah, let's see. Yeah, the the note here. I go back to the, the economist's name. By the way, his name is Tyler Cohen, Tyler Cowen, whatever. If you don't want to look up the year that he gave us uh, 700 to last as a species. Um. But either way, the article continues to state. Well, essentially, I'm I'm uh, uh, extrapolating here that the basic gist is it's crazy because even 700 years. Uh, we have to think to ourselves: the future is never really guaranteed. Okay, but the present is right. So when we start to think about it in this term, we realize that, yo, forever is really not that long of... It's a rather a really, really long time forever is. And it doesn't seem like humans are going to make it. You know what I'm saying? And when we start to realize this, as many people may very well be doing because of the coronavirus, uh, the realization of causes a crisis of meaning, okay? And it's only going to get deeper... As the time comes closer, the crisis of meaning here being, what the fuck am I doing with my life? What is life in general? What's the point of it all? Why fucking be moral? Why be responsible when I can just kill, fucking rape, murder, torture, whatever? Because I'm going to die anyways. Nothing has any meaning or purpose. Humanity is not going to exist and so on. You know what I'm saying? This is where the social contract theory inevitably emerged in my classes, but I'm, I'm cutting really close to an hour here. And if you're still listening, I appreciate the fuck out of your time and patience. So I'll try to get through this as quickly as I can, right? Anyways, essentially. Uh, the goal for this article, essentially, is what she's trying to say is to avoid not only this inevitable end, but rather to uh, also avoid this depressed process of us going through the motions until it does, in fact, occur, right? Now, she introduced this really cool metaphor that says that just the way that people are currently stockpiling food and you know other necessities in anticipation of a potential quarantine because of the uh, of the coronavirus, right? it's the same thing is going to happen uh it's that she refers to it as the argument follows a depressed dissatisfied and de-energized distant future is going to strip the present meaning of any future or, or rather the future of any meaning as well until the same is true of the here and now meaning that inevitably if we know that the human the, the human species is going to come to an end That is going to introduce to us a very depressed, distant, fucking de-energized feeling, right? Here in the present. And when the future generation that is the last generation comes, it's they're only gonna it's only gonna be amplified by that point, right? Um, so the goal then is that, you know, we here in the now can't allow for this nihilistic impulse, if you will, this plague to use plague rather, to use the Camusian language to take foot. Because if it does, then we're basically fucking condemning ourselves to utter extinction and that it's the responsibility instead of people like you and I, she's going to refer to them as humanists, um, in order uh, to avoid this, to actually take fucking accountability. Now she says to have the ability to live a life with courage. Okay. To learn, to live a life of courage. And she says, well, what is courage? It's simple. It's admitting that even though we're going to die, even though the human species may potentially come to an end, we have to admit that things still matter. Okay. They matter to you as an individual and they matter collectively as a society as a whole, because without that we're fucked where we're going to fuck the future generations as well. Okay. We have to learn. This is the meaning of courage to see the value of life as more than just biological, but now as an ethical impulse. For those of you who have listened to the Kierkegaard podcast that I do with my boy Aaron. That's what the fuck he's talking about. Learn to recognize ourselves as ethical, moral agents living in a world where our fucking actions and responsibilities do in fact matter. Okay? So circling back to the example that I gave to you of the iPhone, like I have to recognize me as an individual person that my purchasing of the iPhone, that's an ethical and moral decision that I'm making. And then if I continue along with that fucking attitude of like, ah, eh, who cares? I enjoy my iPhone. I enjoy all that kind of shit. That's the depersonalized, de-fucking-pressed, de-energized self that is only going to pave the way for the future so that when that last generation does come, people are just going to be like, ah, fuck it, who cares anyways, right? And we're trying to seek to avoid that. And the only way that we can seek to do so, or do so is to stop recoiling from the fucking terrible present that we find ourselves living in. And instead, learn to become, this is what she said, these are her words now, the specialist in finitude, the experts in loss, and most importantly, or poetically, I should say, the scientists of tragedy. So to tie it all in with the podcast at the El Grito, now exactly at the one minute... Yep, at about the one minute, uh, one hour mark. Yeah, I salute you for sticking around. I really do appreciate it. Right? Um, yeah, dog. Coronavirus shit's crazy. Maybe it's fucking, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's something really fucking big. Right now, too early to decide. So yeah, dog. The coronavirus. Maybe it's too early to know for sure what's going on. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's something huge. I don't know. Only fucking time will tell. What I do know is that more than ever i believe it's causing at a mass scale people to realize the impending finitude of human existence and thus the ensuing necessity or urgency even for us to engage with the world in a moral ethical manner okay so yeah um i guess that's a good enough point of any to draw this bitch to an end i hope you enjoyed this grito and i'm looking forward to bringing you one next week. Hopefully a little more cheerful. Hopefully all the coronavirus news will have already been resolved and we can get back to discussing some other philosophy uh, from the articles that I've been discussing. So until then, I hope you all have a great rest of your day, week. Until next time I see you. And yeah. Peace.